James chapter 4 tonight, I want to encourage you with this. Since this passage is about worship, and these songs just were so awesome, Nicole very strategically and intentionally picks the songs that we worship with when we are in a certain passage. So here's what I'd like to encourage you with. Get these four songs, get the words to these four songs, and for the rest of this week, read through James 4, 1 through 10, meditate on James 4, 1 through 10, and as you're reading it and as you're meditating on it, as you're thinking back over even maybe some of the things I've shared tonight, do some worship and word combination there and use that as part of your time with the Lord the rest of this week. Again, I want us to approach James 4, 1 through 10 tonight as sort of settling the question of our worship. And I want to actually begin in verse 5 tonight with this phrase. James says, do you think the scripture means nothing or was without purpose when it says, the spirit that God caused to live within us has an anxious yearning? James is describing the spirit that God created us for, that, that the body that we live in is the shell of our spirit that God gave us, and the spirit is the real us. And James is reminding us that this spirit has an envious yearning. What's that mean? It simply means this. When God created us and placed this spirit inside of this body, he created every human being to be a worshiper. All of us as human beings are going to worship something or someone in our life. That's how God created us. Now, obviously, God wants us to come to a place in our life where we worship him, where that yearning that we have in our spirit is settled, if you will, and fulfilled in him. But this passage is all about worship. Let me give you a couple more. If you go up to the verse 4, the first word, adulterers, means those who are faithless to God, those who are worshiping any other than the true God. That's what it means. And then down to verse 8, a verse that in a sense we just sung about right now. Draw near to God is simply come into God's presence. It's the idea of being extremely close to God. What's that about? It's about worship. This passage is all about worship. And James wants us as God's people to once and for all settle the question of worship. Why? Because again, every human being was created by God to be a worshiper. But here's the deal, as James is going to point out. True worship can only have one object. And you find this principle throughout the Bible. All the way back to the law, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. In the New Testament, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You either love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other, but you can't serve two gods. Then John says, little children, speaking to us as Christians, keep yourself from idols. 
Idolatry was the problem of God's people in the Old Testament, and guess what? It's still the problem of God's people in the New Testament because an idol is anyone or anything that takes the place of God because true worship can only have one object. And James is saying, let's settle it, right? Right now, of who it is, we're going to worship for the rest of our lives. And I believe that James saw that signed, sealed, and delivered kind of worship in his brother Jesus. That there was never a question in Jesus about the fact that he was God himself, but that he also acknowledged God in his life at all times while he was here on earth. That's why in the temptation of Jesus by the devil... Even the devil takes him out, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, says, if you just bow to me, if you just worship me, you can have all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus. And Jesus said to the devil, you shall not tempt the Lord thy God. And there was no way Jesus was going to worship the devil and receive earthly kingdoms because he was already going to be one day and is positionally even now the King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day Jesus Christ is going to inherit the entire universe that he created. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that even reminds us, and we sung about endless hallelujah tonight, that in heaven... One of the primary purposes that we will exist forever for is to worship the Lord. Read the book of Revelation. Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and praise and thanksgiving. And over and over again, the book of Revelation says that what is in store for us in the future is acknowledging God throughout eternity. So with all of that said... I've divided these 10 verses up into three sections that each reveal to us the object of our worship. In the first three verses, our desires reveal the object of our worship. In verses 4 through 6, our decisions reveal the object of our worship. And finally, in verse 6 to verse 10, our demeanor reveals the object of our worship. Let's start up in verse 1 then. Where do conflicts and where do the quarrels among you come from? Speaking corporately now, as a group of people, he's saying, look, you all sometimes get the fighting with each other and, and disputing and contending and battling with each other. He says, where do these external fights come from? James says, I'll tell you where they come from. The external unsettledness comes from being internally unsettled. And James is going to teach us that if we would simply worship God and be settled in God and find our satisfaction and fulfillment in God, there wouldn't be as much external conflict because internally we wouldn't be all worked up striving for the things of the world that we could only find in God. That's why he says, is it not from this, from your passions? 
that battle inside of you, passions. In fact, the word then next that he uses in verse 2 is desire, what we are truly passionate about. We all have to answer that question because that settles the question of our worship once and for all. Who or what is the passion of our life? What or who do we desire above everything else? And James is saying there's always a battle going on inside of us, literally a spiritual warfare about what is it that we desire the most? Who is the greatest or what is the greatest passion of our life? One thing that James also is pointing out, I, I just want to say to, on, as an aside, but it's an important point, is that he says these external conflicts and quarrels that come with each other because of our internal unsettledness and restlessness is because as you and I go after the things of the world to satisfy our own earthly desires or whatever, they come at the expense of other things and other people. I'm not going to be able to explain this correctly, but James is reminding us that when we as God's people worship God, the worship of God will never come at the expense of others, hurting them in some way. But when you and I live for the things of the world, we're, and we're going after and pursuing those things, then we're always doing it at the expense of something else in our life that is more worthwhile and even someone else, James says. Something to think about, something to ponder, something to consider. It's a little deep there when you think about it. You see, and that's why I think Jesus said you can't serve two masters. So then in verse 2, he says, you desire and you do not have, you murder, you envy, you burn for these things of the world, but you can't attain them all. And you're back to quarreling and fighting either within yourself or with others because you have this insatiable desire that cannot be fulfilled and satisfied by things of the world. And then he says, you don't have it because you don't ask for it. Jesus said, we have not because we ask not. In other words, James is saying part of our worship and part of our desire that reflects the object of our worship is going to God and receiving everything from his hand. And knowing that if we truly need something in this life, we will receive it from the hand of our loving Heavenly Father. We don't need to look outside of him for anything. But when we bypass looking to him to meet our need and we go after it ourselves, then obviously we're not asking him for it. 
we either get impatient and run ahead of the Lord or we're not even asking for it in the first place. And then James goes on to say in verse 3, and then you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You don't get from God what you're asking for because what we're asking for is not going to spiritually benefit us. So God's not going to hand it to us because from his perspective, this is going to be hurtful for you. This isn't good for you. So I'm not going to give it to you. God's not going to give his children things that hurt them. Only good and perfect gifts come down from the Father of lights. And James says, these things that you want, you want it so that you can spend it on your passions. Spend is an interesting word. It means to waste or squander. What is it that we're wasting and squandering our lives on because of our earthly desires and passions? In fact, that's what he says at the end of verse 3. Passions are these earthly pleasures and indulgences. Isn't that what the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3? Paul says, in the last days, perilous or difficult times will come. And three of the characteristics that Paul gives us there of why difficult times will come are because people will be lovers of themselves. They will love money or material things. And then he goes on to say, and they will love pleasure more than God. Check it out, 2 Timothy 3. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. So James is saying, let's, as God's people, settle the question of our worship. Let's once and for all say, that we're going to nail it down in my life. Now look, even if you nail it down, there's still going to be these battles inside of us. It's not like you're not going to get a pull from the world or a pull from your flesh or even a pull from the devil. But the idea is if it's settled, if you and I have set our heart upon the Lord and truly he is our passion, and he is the greatest desire that we have of our life, then when these things come, we're going to see that we have built, in a sense, and God has built around us sort of a, a shield and a hedge of protection against all the things that pull. And if our love for God, and we sung about that tonight, all my love is yours. If our love for God, which is the greatest commandment, is greater than any other love, then no matter what comes into our life, we'll say no to if it's contradictory to our love for God. That's why the greatest commandment, obviously, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because again, if we start there, that's where our passion is. That's where our desire is. That's truly what we care about and love more than anything else. So James in the first three verses says, Settling the question of our worship begins with our desires. Our desires reveal the object or objects of our worship. But secondly, our decisions in life, what we choose, also reflects the object of our worship. Because just like our desires, 
Our decisions are discriminatory. And one decision for this means I can't do that because we can't do everything, right? So every choice we make means if I choose that, that means there's certain things I can't do if I'm going to choose that or if I'm going to do it well. So I'm not only saying yes to things, but I also am correspondingly saying no to certain things when I say yes to certain things. I have to always keep that in mind when I make my decisions. And James is simply saying, is the decisions and choices that I make always being formed or shaped by God coming first. That that whatever God says, whatever God wants, whatever his will is, always is the first consideration in my decision-making process. That's why he starts out this section with adulterers. He's talking about, in a sense, those committing spiritual adultery. We're married to Christ, but we are unfaithful to him because there are other things in our life that are more important, of greater value, of greater worth than God. And our decisions, James says, is reflecting that. And so he goes on to explain that by talking about being friends with the world or friends with God. Notice he says, I'm comparing you spiritual adulterers to being friends with the world. And he says, if your fondness or affection with the world is evident in your life, then you realize that means you're actually being hostile towards God. It means from, your, from God's perspective, you've become an enemy of God. You've set yourself against God by saying, I'm a friend of the world, by going after the things of the world, the things that the world offers more than the things of God. It also means, this word hostility, to be alienated from God. Not that God ever walks away or distances himself from us, but sort of like the prodigal son, we're not satisfied to stay at home with the father and experience all the blessings of being home with the father, so we're taken off. And we're creating some distance between us and God. And when we go towards the world, we go away from God. So what decisions are we making? Are they decisions and choices that show that we are more friends and fond and affectionate of the things of the world or the things of God? Or are we showing that Our fondness and affection and love for God is so much that we're willing to sacrifice the things of the world. Because again, true worship can only have one object. And if I'm going after God, that means I'm going to be giving up things in this world. But God says, you're not really giving it up, right? Because everything that you ever want, you can find in me, and and the things that you're going to find in me are going to last for all of eternity, where the things of the world are going to pass away because we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. And even those in the world that tried to grab a hold of the world, they lost their own soul even though they gained the whole world. 
And Jesus called them a fool because their decisions were that they were more fond and affectionate of what the world offered than what God offered. So he says, so whoever decides, whoever deliberately chooses to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. So that's why I said this section is all about not our desires, but our decisions. What have we decided to do? What are we going after? And that's why when he comes to verse 5, he says, do you think the scripture means nothing? When it says the spirit that God caused to live within us has an envious yearning. God created us to worship him, not the world. The world's passing away. All that is in the world one day is not going to be. And God just simply wants us as his children, especially to live for what what is of greatest value and what is of greatest worth and what is lasting, not for the the, the trinkets and and the things that the world offers us that one day is not going to matter. And here's the thing. God says, when you choose to worship me and seek first the kingdom of God, all those other things that the Gentiles seek that they go after first, I'll give those to you too just to enjoy while you're here. So it's not like God's people have to live in squalor and and miss out on the things of the world. God just simply says, just put me first, and you'll still be able to enjoy things, but it'll come from the right perspective, that, that all I really want is God, but because God is so good and God is so generous and God is so full of grace, he'll still dump a bunch of stuff into our life anyway. And I love this at the beginning of verse 6. And this is where sometimes even the verse divisions are unfortunate because I think it goes right along with verse 5. God gives greater grace. Why is that there and why is it in the context it is? For this reason, God's grace can overcome the pull of the world. So notice then, God gives his grace so that we can be true worshipers of him. We we can never say to God, God, there was just no way I could overcome the pull of the world, my flesh, and the devil. No, God says, I give you greater grace. It's not that we won't get the pulls. We will. We're human. We're going to be tempted. But God says, in those moments when the devil comes to you and offers you something, when your flesh is desiring something that is just simply an earthly pleasure and indulgence that I haven't led you to ask for, when the world is offering you something, God says, at that moment, I will give you grace to say, nah, I'll wait till God brings that into my life. If he really wants me to have it, he'll give it to me because he gives me greater grace. I mean, that's how amazing our God is that he not only lays out for us the best life, but gives us the ability and the supernatural enablement to be able to live that life, to be able to be true worshipers, 
and say no to all the crumbs of the world, if you will, instead of feasting at the king's table every day. So then, one more. Not only does our decisions reveal the object of our worship and our desires reveal the object of our worship, our demeanor reveals the object of our worship. And we get that again beginning in verse 6. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud. If we set ourselves against God when we become friends of the world, God says, I set myself against those who are arrogant and haughty and proud, who are living self-reliant, who do not live in dependence and reliance and in need of me. I will set myself against them. And so that's why I use the word demeanor, because our demeanor is either going to be one of pride and arrogance and haughtiness, self-reliance, I've got this God, I can do it by myself, or humility where we say, God, I need you. God, I need to rely and depend upon you every day and live a life of that. And notice God says, again, going back to grace, he gives grace to who? The humble. Those who are willing to look to him and come to him and say, God, I need you. I want to worship you, God. I, I want to wrap my arms around and embrace those things that are truly worthwhile and of greatest value and worth. But you know, God, there are so many things that pull at me in this world and my own flesh, and the devil comes at me offering things just as he did your son. God, give me grace. Help me. And God will. And the grace that he gives is enough. It's sufficient. And then James says, so submit to God. Surrender. Stop fighting God and just submit yourself. And here's the thing. When we stop fighting God, we can fight off anything else. Let me repeat that, because notice what the next phrase says. When you and I stop fighting God and we surrender to him, we can fight off anything else, including the devil. Because when you and I are surrendered to God and worshiping him, we can even resist the devil. We can hold our spiritual ground. We can withstand his attacks and his offerings, and he'll even run away, the Bible says, from us. Oh, and by the way, another implication of that is he'll even avoid us. Because the devil really doesn't want to fight. The devil looks for those who are weakest and most vulnerable. And those are the ones he goes after. It doesn't mean that a strong Christian is not going to engage in spiritual warfare at times. But it simply means that the devil most of the time doesn't want to be involved in a hard fight. If he knows he can't get anywhere with you and I... If he knows that the desire of our heart has been settled and that, God, we love you more than anything else, then he's probably going to go after those who are still trying to figure that out. Which is why James says, verse 8, draw near to God. Get as close to God as you can. Live in his presence at all 
times, and he will draw near to you. God is a perfect gentleman. He will not force his presence upon us, but as soon as God sees in us that we desire to be with him and in his presence, he is right there. Now, he never leaves us, but he sort of even like scooches and snuggles up even closer. And then James says, so cleanse your hands, you sinners. Consecrate yourself, dedicate your hands, and settle in your hearts. That's what the word make. Settle your hearts to be pure, to be totally devoted to God, devoid of any admixture. Anything that keeps the purity level from being as high as it could be, notice, you double-minded, divided in interest, <laughs> vacillating. And then he says, grieve, mourn, and weep. Turn your laughter into mourning and your joy into despair. What's he talking about? He's describing one who's now deeply affected about their distance from God and who is seeking restoration of fellowship with God through repentance. He's saying, have you gotten to a place like the prodigal son where you're miserable enough being apart from God and distancing yourself from God and not worshiping God but going after the things of the world? Are you now finally done with that and you're ready to turn your life around because you truly miss God and you miss that, that sweet fellowship with God? And sort of like even David cried out, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Sometimes we get there because we're worshiping other things rather than God. And that's okay, because God always accepts us back. In fact, James ends this great passage then with these words, humble, show humility, show your need of God before him, expressing continual reliance and dependence upon him, and he will exalt you. He will literally lift us up and raise us up. And it speaks about our spirit. You and I want our spirits lifted and raised up. God says, worship me. Humble yourself before me. Show your need and dependence and relieth upon me and I'll exalt you. I mean, think about it. What's at work here? It's amazing. We exalt God, he exalts us. We can't lose. You and I cannot lose when we live a life of worship and when we settle once and for all the question of our worship. Who or what are we worshiping? Because we were all made to worship and we're going to worship something or someone in our life, throughout our life. It's not a question of are we worshiping, it's who or what are we worshiping at that moment in that season. And James is simply saying, let's settle it, Christian. And let's be reminded that our desires reveal the object of our worship, our decisions reveal the object of our worship, and our demeanor reveals the object of our worship. Are we humble, teachable, surrendered? Or are we filled with pride and self-reliance and arrogance and haughtiness? God blesses the humble. God gives grace to the humble. God exalts the humble. 
I don't know about you, but even tonight, you know, we had a hard day as a church family today. I needed my spirit lifted up and raised up today. And when I came into this auditorium, even before you all arrived, God lifted me up just through being here and listening to Nicole go over the worship tonight. And then God continued to lift up my spirit and raise up my spirit throughout my time with you tonight. So we're going to get that time again. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're just going to spend a moment in prayer. Nicole's going to come up, and we're going to end our talk on worship with, again, expressing worship to the Lord. And I love the song we're going to sing, Lord, I Need You. What a great song, a song of humility before the Lord. So let's pray. God, it is our privilege and honor to worship you, God. And we have been reminded tonight, God, that every last one of us, when we were created, we were knit together in our mother's womb. We were knit together by you to be worshipers and to find our fulfillment and satisfaction for all of eternity in you. We know the world pulls us. We know the devil pulls us. We know the flesh pulls us. But God, James is reminding us that as a Christian, I need to come to a place in my life where I settle that question once and for all. Who is it or what is it that I desire the most? Who is it or what, it or what is it that drive my decisions more than anything else? And does my demeanor every day before the Lord and before others show who it is or what it is I worship? God, right now we have that opportunity to end our day before we go home tonight and express to you, God, we need you. God, would you accept our worship tonight as we pour out our hearts, declaring our need of you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray.